0: Let's open the word of God, please, to 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. And uh, 1 Kings is in the Old Testament, of course, and that's one nice breakdown of the 39 books. And 1 Kings is uh, right there, kind of between First and 2 Samuel and 2 Kings, First and Second Chronicles. So, boom, right there. You know... Um, not many people would deny this anymore, but, uh, America is in cultural and moral freefall. And a lot of people see that, but very few seem to realize the root of this is much more spiritual than it is political. And, uh, the problem is not we, we haven't spent enough money on state or federal social programs to rebuild certain neighborhoods or to uh, try to create jobs. It's uh, much more profound than that. I'm convinced that a big part, maybe the major part of the spiritual root for the cultural degradation we've been seeing for the last several decades is just the, the lack of consistent parental leadership in the home, especially the lack of positive appropriate discipline by fathers who love their wives, who live with their wives, who are committed to their children's life and committed to the ongoing function of their families. Now, it's quite true that church functions and nonprofit organizations and even some of the government agencies have organized some uh, very positive things for people dealing with the effects of the moral breakdown in our culture but until or unless that root is repaired I mean until or unless America becomes uh, a nation full overflowing with families with parents who live together who love one another and with fathers that head up the department of discipline and personal accountability in each home the problem will not go away and it will only get worse, and at some point you hit a tipping point, you have total collapse of a culture and moral anarchy. Um, and it could get that bad. But thinking about fathers, today we're going to see in First Kings 9 that God is a heavenly father. Jesus refers to God the Father as our Father who art in heaven. In and Notice that's plural, by the way, our Father. It's not just my Father but he's identifying with all of us. But in our passage this morning, we're going to see that God is a heavenly father for his children, and he both blesses and disciplines his children. And good parental leadership uh, by moms and by dads involves a little bit of both in appropriate doses, right? So we're going to look at that as we look at the first nine verses of 1 Kings chapter 9 today. But let's pray we'll be teachable to God's word and let's pray for our troops and our peace officers and our firefighters as well as we do that. And uh, Lloyd Davis, would you please pray for for us in that direction? Amen. Thank you very much. Um, talking about fathers, you know, Ron Miller is a humble man, but he has a lot to be humble about. But one of his sterling qualities among many is he's a really, really world-class father. And he's put out about that. Um and she's shaking her head, but she's kidding, I think. But uh, Ron does have an issue that I don't have to deal with. He's not really as cool a dude as he could really be. And so in an effort to uh, lighten your load and to warm up your capacity for abstract thought, before we dive into 1 Kings 9, uh, I'd like to share with you, there are hundreds of things I can think of, but just the top three ways that Ron Miller could become a cool dude. Okay, Number three. He could close his t-shirt shop and open a tattoo shop. He's actually thought about that. But Number 2, he could shave his head. Oh, you know what? That's not that that didn't work, did it? No, no, forget that. That's a bad idea. And then the number one way Ron Miller could become a cool dude, he could start hanging out with cool cool dudes like Mike Palavic, Homer Cox, Chuck Norris and Pee-wee Herman. It would be if he would do something like that, it might help. Okay, we're in 1 Kings, which is in the Old Testament. So what does that mean? Uh, we're looking at the life of Solomon in 1 Kings 1 through 12. Let's put that in biblical context. The Bible is the Word of God written. It's a big book, but it breaks down into only two parts. The first part of the Bible is called the Old Testament. It's the 39 books written that anticipate the first coming of Jesus Christ. second part of the Bible is called the New Testament. The book's written in the generation of Jesus explaining how he fulfilled the Old Testament promises and telling us other things he's going to do because he is the issue and the issuer of eternal life to all who trust in him. There's one major premise the Old Testament really pounds away at. All human beings are sinners and they all die. I mean, the death rate's 100%. One major promise, Scott, that the Old Testament gives us, God's going to send a Savior. God's going to deal with the sin issue. God's going to make us savable. And in fact, in the Old Testament, as you analyze all this prophecy about the first coming of the Savior, you get an amazingly clear picture of who He's going to be, where He's going to function, when He's going to come, what He's going to do, and why He's going to do it. And when you look at the Old Testament requirements, Carol, for who the Messiah's got to be, it gets increasingly specific. I mean, In Genesis 3, we're told it will be a human being, not an angel or an alien, who's going to crush the head of Satan. It'll be a male, not a female. It'll be a descendant of Shem. It'll be a Jew. He'll he'll be a Jewish man. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob related to them of the particular tribe of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, of a particular family, David and Solomon. And then born of a virgin really narrows it down. But when you're, we're looking at first Kings, we're looking at Solomon, and isn't it interesting that the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, for 18 verses gives you a genealogy, all these names. Why would he give you a bunch of boring names? He's trying to validate the fact that Jesus qualifies to be the Messiah because all of these promises, but particularly these, about who he must be, who he will be, are fulfilled in Jesus. So, as I've said throughout this series, uh, each one of these passages as written scriptures is is profitable for us just learning principles from Solomon's life. But in the big picture, in the macro history, what we're looking at is one of the building blocks that God used over many, many, many generations to work out His will to get Jesus here. And today we come to chapter nine, verses uh, one through nine, God as heavenly father blesses and disciplines his children. And one of the great things about being a grandfather is I don't have to discipline them anymore. I mean, we have a few rules, but very few. Okay. And it takes uh, usually my kids about two weeks to kind of overcome the effects Papa has had on the routine, you know, but. I feel like I owe that to my boys because they were, they were hard on me growing up. You know, it wasn't, wasn't all as, you know, it wasn't as easy as it looked, you know. But, uh, these nine verses break down into two parts. First, verses one and two, we're going to see that after lots of works and lots of accomplishments, Solomon kind of takes a moment to renew and to reflect and he has an appearance to him by God, which kings, uh, prophets and priests would sometimes get in the Old Testament. This is the second. He lived 80 years. He had two of these. I have some people tell me every day God tells him what tie to wear. It's interesting. Solomon is probably more important than you in the grand scheme of things. Maybe. He's certainly a lot more important than me. And God speaks directly to Solomon twice in 80 years. He's not talking about what tie to wear. So I think he kind of gives us the ability to figure those things out on our own, and we're responsible for our choices, right? How would you like my choice today? I'm colorblind, so does it fit? I'm Yeah, I told this, I told you the story about going to the Cameron, first Cameron graduation I went to as a faculty member. I thought I had a yellow tie. Debbie was out of town because her mother was very ill. Ken, I wore an orange tie to Cameron's graduation. Which, Phil, that means OSU. And when you're at Cameron, they don't like that they're yellow and black. So that was a problem. So we're going to see Solomon reflecting and renewing. And as it turns out, this is a crossroads in his life. And he doesn't do real well after this, Austin. But he first half of his reign, he does quite well. And God's given him every chance to finish well. But he doesn't finish well. And then we're going to see Solomon instructs, or God instructs Solomon and us about three things. We need to appreciate our position in the Lord. Very important. We need to be, with a passion, seek consistent, excellent commitment to the Lord. Not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but even on prom night. And we need to be aware of the fact that inconsistency and sin in our lives as believers won't kick us out of the family, but it will bring divine discipline in time. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. It came about when Solomon had, after 20 years or so, finished building the house of the Lord, the temple, the permanent sanctuary in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, and also his own house, his palace, the king's house, And all that Solomon desired to do, including a lot of fortified cities and places like Megiddo and Hebron and other places that the passage talks about earlier, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon back in chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3. Go back uh, several years, and we see early in Solomon's reign, God gives him a blank check as the new king who's one of the people in the line to bring Messiah Jesus into the world at the exact right time. Uh, We see this appearance here in uh, chapter 3, and we read, look at verse 4, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. Solomon goes about eight miles north from Jerusalem to Gibeon, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Gibeon, the Lord, appeared to Solomon in a dream. And God said, ask what you wish me to give you. I'll, I'll give you, ask. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Uh, I want you to do a great job as my king of my uh, nation here. And Solomon said, you've shown great hesed, great loving kindness, loyal love to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness. You've given him a son. My dad uh, is... Blessed and honored because you're letting me, his son, sit on the throne as it is today. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant, me, Solomon, king in place of my father, but I'm just a little child. I'm wet behind the ears. I'm not as wise or as uh, uh, skilled as I should be to lead this great nation. I, in effect, don't know how to get in and out of the house. Your servant is in the midst of your people, God, Which you have chosen to bring salvation into the world through these people, a great number who can't be, a great number who can't be numbered or counted. So give me, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. He's asking for wisdom. And notice verse 10, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked for that. God says, because you've asked for this thing, for a discernment, for wisdom, for great judgment, and haven't asked long life or riches or this and that, I'm going to give you discernment, and wisdom, and so much more. So go back to chapter 9. That was the earlier visitation that's referred to here in chapter 9, verse 2. After Solomon, 20 years later, has built all these things and, and made a significant contribution to God's program, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him in Gibeon. So uh, what has Solomon done lately that's important? Well, he built the temple. This is a model of the temple, Solomon's temple you can buy on the internet. I've got the website if you want it. Just thought it was a good model. Uh, this is the, uh, temple mount as it appears now. And you guys know that's not a Jewish temple, is it? That's the Dome of the Rock, which is a, uh, we're gonna do dueling laser pointers. Me and James have been talking about doing that. So any- anytime you want to, just to make- wake them up, it'd be good. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's so thoughtful because, you know, for years I was having trouble with my laser pointers. And then Maxine gave me the laser pointer she used to torment her cat. And this thing works perfectly every Sunday. The high dollar ones I bought would always break down. And James is so wise, he's got a back up for me. But, yeah, you know, uh Muhammad lived from 570 to 632 A.D. So he dies in 632 by 700 A.D., the Muslims had built this on the Temple Mount on purpose, on top of the, the temple location to commemorate their victory over Judaism and Christianity, right? Uh, there's the Wailing Wall. What's the Wailing Wall? Why is it so important? Because it's an artifact, not of Solomon's Temple, but of the second temple. Solomon's Temple is destroyed by the Babylonians, 586 B.C., but a second temple is built on the same location. as the one the Lord Jesus would have interacted with. And so this is a nice diagram, Russell, that shows you kind of a schematic of the Temple Mount in Jesus' day and the temple, and then it shows you a schematic of what it looks like now. And when you're looking at the western wall, you're basically looking at that part of the wall around the second temple, okay? which would have been exactly where Solomon's temple would have been, on the exact same location. So Solomon has done some amazing things, and by God's grace, with a great peace dividend thanks to his dad, uh, his influence and power has expanded as far as the Jewish uh, nation will ever be, this side of the Messiah ruling, ruling the world in the future, all the way from the Wadi of Egypt up to the uh, Euphrates River. So he controls a vast, uh, for that day, area of territory. So he's at a good time to kind of reflect and renew, for sure. It's as good as it gets. So here's the principle. I think, you know, last time, two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that God wants us to have parties. At appropriate uh, at appropriate moments, you know, birthday parties, wedding uh, uh, receptions, fiftieth uh, anniversary parties, those kind of things. Because after they completed the temple, what did Solomon, with God's blessing, do? They basically had a three-week party, national party. So we talked about that aspect last time I spoke from this book. But today, over kind of overlapping with that, but distinct, from time to time, especially after after we've passed certain milestones or accomplished certain uh, key accomplishments in our lives, we should slow down and reflect on God's blessing and presence in our life and renew our commitment to him. A lot of times, you know, we pray for God to help us to get something or do something or be something, and then we get there or we, be, we, be, we become that thing, and then we kind of want to go on our own steam, and we can't do that. We, the, the things that made us what we are initially are the things that will keep us going. And so I think when as we pass our birthdays, rather than dreading them as we get older, maybe it's a a good time to look back and say, you know, God has given me a pretty good 63 years here. And since I look half dead right now, I guess I'm going to live to be 126. You know, I mean, just do the math, you know. Uh, Christmas and Easter, really important. You know, as the culture continues to celebrate these holidays, but just, you know, suck out the core of them and just make them, you know, Thanksgiving is now National Turkey Day and you eat more than you need to and watch four or five football games, and that's all good. Um, uh, but Christmas, literally, I mean, two years ago, the first year I had my first mentee, as we were going to Christmas time, I, I asked him what his family was going to do for Christmas, and he kind of told me, and I said, well, you know what Christmas is, right? He said, yeah, it's when Santa Claus comes. I said, well, yes, that's right, but it's more than that. It's Jesus' birthday. And he kind of went, really? And he had never heard that. So you might think, yeah, this is not in Red China. This is not North Korea. This is the United States of America. So let's redeem, redeem these holidays. I mean, a lot of times we Christians feel like some of the debauchery at office parties and this is ridiculous, but we don't have to be involved in that. Let's let's make the holidays and birthdays and anniversaries special and let them be a time for us to renew our commitment. To me, one of the most important things God's built into the program of a good church is communion, the Lord's Supper, and that's a time when, in a special way, we reflect and we renew. I mean, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to proclaim and celebrate the Lord's death for our sins, validated by his resurrection, until he comes back. So the Lord's Supper is an inter-advent uh, event. Uh, after the Lord comes back, we won't have the Lord's Supper, can We'll have supper with the Lord, you know, uh, wedding supper of the Lamb kind of thing. And the function, really, I think, of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate, Lord willing, two weeks from now, is to recenter a believer's focus on who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he will do with us in the future, right? Which is why exactly uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper, as often as you eat this bread and drink this blood, what are you doing? You're proclaiming, you're reflecting, you're celebrating his death, his resurrection, and yearning for his return. So I think the Lord's Supper is a good example of kind of what God's doing for Solomon here, calling him to reflect and recenter uh, after he's kind of passed all these, uh, accomplished all these wonderful things for the nation. But he continues to have another 20 years to serve, and he actually doesn't do very well, unfortunately. But it's not God's fault. A lot of times we want to blame God for the failures, but it's, it's not his fault. Okay, let's go back to this. Now, we're going to look at verses 3 through 9, Steve. And you know what? Uh, that was maybe an okay uh, initial PowerPoint slide, but it's really way too much stuff on the tech on the slide there. And we're done with verses one and two. So, what should we do with that, Steve? Want to get rid of it? Is that okay. Let's get rid of that. Okay, that's good. We we'll look at three through nine, but you know, Ken, I don't like that because you got so much empty space above the, the title there. You like that? I don't like that. So let's move that up. Now I'm going to look at this again. I'm entertaining myself here. Uh, Okay, we've got way too much black stuff. St- st- even Vivian, when she looked at this last night, she said, "Papa, there's too much black stuff under, that, under the lettering there. So I thought, well, yeah, we can spread that out. And then, uh, but you know what? We need one more little touch to really make this really a world-class slide. So let's, let's do that. Okay, so we're going to see, yeah, we're going to see that. So now uh, God speaks to Solomon not to offer him wisdom. He's got it. The question is, is he going to apply it? That's, that's where the hard part is. Uh, and he basically says, I want you to appreciate your position spiritually in me. I want you to have a passion to pursue consistent commitment to me in the future, not rest on your laurels, not coast. There's no such thing as spiritual coasting, you know. Howard Hendricks used to say, the spiritual life is like riding a bicycle uphill. As soon as you stop pedaling, what happens? You start losing ground, right? We're not saved by works. We're not saved by our efforts. But spiritual fitness is exactly like physical fitness, okay? You can't just do the spirit of survival and then take the next two years off and eat Cheetos and candy bars and be in the shape you guys are in right now, right? you got to keep doing it, right? So that's kind of what he's saying there in uh, that second affirmation, verses 4 and 5. And then verses 6 through 9, he's going to say, uh inconsistency beware watch out flashing red lights uh inconsistency and sin in a believer's life will yield negative fruit negative fallout and divine discipline from the lord okay now watch this uh in your wording in your handout i'm uh saying that the lord's instruction here in verses three through nine can teaches you three lessons and you're not solomon you're not in the old testament you're on the new testament side of the ledger uh but I think these principles uh, apply to any believer regardless of which side of the testament you're on. Now realize that God makes a basic foundational series of promises to Abraham in Genesis that apply to the whole plan for humanity. But before the Savior comes, we have spirituality with training wheels on it. God doesn't have individual believers and a church that's made up of all the countries and all the colors and all the cultures of all born-again believers regardless of denomination. He's not doing it like that on what he's doing in the New Testament. He's doing this in a different way. He's got one nation and one central sanctuary that focuses on the glide path to Jesus, right? And so Solomon's living there. Jan Palovic's over here. She's a believer in 2016. But the basic principles here, I think, are gnomic, transcendent kind of principles. Now, by the way, what's the, in one word, and it starts with a J, what's the difference, ultimately, between the Old Testament economy and the New Testament economy? That would be Jesus in His first advent. He comes as the Lamb, right? To be the sacrificial, uh, uh, Savior who bears our sins as our substitute, right? Uh, what's going to end human history on God's term? Who, who's going to end it? Jesus in his second advent. But here's the thing. The great divide of history, and by the way, history mean, break, break history down into two words. His story, right? Right, Shiloh? His story. History is his story, and it roots on his death and his resurrection because Jesus died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. In the Old Testament, folks had faith in a promised Savior. In the New Testament, we have faith in the provided Savior. And why do we believe in Jesus for salvation? Because everything that could keep Kylene out of heaven, a little bit. Everything that could keep Ron out of heaven, a whole lot. Everything that could keep me out of heaven, you can't write it all down, okay? Jesus Christ died and paid for, and he paid the debt on the cross for our sins. James, hold up your forearm. Unroll it. He's got such big arm. Yeah, can you, th- th- make sure they can see that. Phil, have you seen this? This guy. I mean, you think you got a million m- million dollar arm? He's got a million dollar arm. Okay, he's got a million dollar arm. That he's got a Greek word there. Telestai. In John nineteen thirty, when Jesus has finished the payment for sins, he says it is finished. In English. But there's just one Greek word, Lindell. It's telestai, means paid in full. They would pay, they would write that on bills of sale after you paid the price for the ox. So as you walk the ox to the village, somebody would say, hey, that belongs to Publius. That's not your ox. No, I bought it from Publius. Paid in full. So history, both biblical and secular history is all about and revolves around the very person and work of Jesus Christ and salvation is because of him and through him. And you know what? It only took us like three years. And thank you, James. You know, uh, Lord, I lift your, your, Lord, I lift your name on high. Love to sing your praises. Uh, He came from heaven to earth to show the way. I know that's what the original lyric was. But that's what Buddha claims to have done. That's what Joseph Smith claims to have done. That's what, uh, Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, claims to have done, to show the way. Jesus didn't just come to show the way. Anybody can show you a way. He came to be the way. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm going to show you about the way, the truth, and the life. Did he? But it's funny. I mean, he's amazing. Uh, I'm not sure. People don't seem to be all that uh, loyal to their Bible translations, but you try to change the lyrics in a worship song, and it took like three years before we convinced them we're going to say, and thank you, James, put that in bold I got another song I'm going to start working on. It's, but it's going to be a three year project, I'll tell you, I'll tell you next week. But yeah. Uh, realize, although there are distinctions between the Old Testament people of God, Israel, the New Testament people of God, the church, they're also overriding gnomic principles. And I think the things he's saying to Solomon would apply to us, and I'm going to try to apply those directly to us. Okay? So look at verse uh three first, as God's interacting with King Solomon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you made before me. I've consecrated this house, this temple which you built by putting my name there forever in my eyes. And my heart will be there perpetual. As long as it's functioning, I'll be there. I'm not going to go anywhere. God had made his manifest presence through a glory cloud, visible and undeniable in the Holy of Holies in that temple. And that's what he did. And no other nation has ever had anything like that or will ever have anything like that, not even the United States of America, for crying out loud. Uh, it wasn't just the splendor of the building, and it was an amazingly complicated and beautiful building. It wasn't just the importance of the rituals that happened in that building, and especially the Day of Atonement. It was a very critical, uh, important uh, picture, ritual for what God was going to do in Christ. It was the fact that God sovereignly chose to make that his dwelling place, to dwell among his people. It's weird. You can't make it up, but God wants to dwell among his people. And that's the way the book ends up in Revelation 21. There's not going to be any temple there because God himself is going to be dwelling among his people. He likes us, okay? God really likes us. It's because he's redeemed us and he's chosen us and he likes to be in the center of it. Now, we don't have a physical temple in the New Testament era. We don't sacrifice animals, do we, Ken? All that was preliminary pointing to Christ. But we do have something. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. We have some privileges that transcend what spirituality with training wheels looked like in the Old Testament. For one thing, rather than a physical uh, central sanctuary in Jerusalem, look at chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Every single born-again believer, every person who's trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation in this room, is in fact a... A temple of the Holy Spirit. He says in First Corinthians 6, the last two verses, 19 and 20. Don't you know, don't you remember? I taught this several times when I was there in Corinth. You should know this. Your body is a temple. Naas, that means central sanctuary. Holy of holies, as opposed, as opposed to herion, which is a different word for the whole building. Uh, temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. Whom you have from God, you're not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore therefore glorify God in your body. All the other religions say glorify God in your body and maybe God will save you. Christianity says you have been bought with a price. You have trusted through faith. You have received the gift. Now, as an effect of that, as a root of your salvation. Good works are not the uh, root, they're the fruit. I should say the fruit of salvation. Glorify God in your body. That's one big distinction in our kind of dynamic relationship with God. But let's think about something else. Talking about the position. Wow. Israel's in an amazing position. They've got this building they've built in the center of their nation, and God has put his manifest presence there. The Hittites don't have that. The Syrians don't have that. The Egyptians don't have that. Uh, nobody's got that. They've got a very unique position. Yeah, we do, too. New Testament believers have a position called in Christ, that little prepositional phrase. Go back to the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians. Now, most of you know that Corinth, in fact, some of us in this room have been to Corinth. It's a real place. But it was considered to be the most notoriously immoral city in the ancient Greco-Roman world. It just had all kinds of the graft and, and perversions you can think of, and probably more than you can think of, uh, were centered in that city. It was considered to be the most wicked city of the time. And, and as you read these letters to the, to the Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, I guess Donald Trump called it two Corinthians several months ago, but most of us call it second, uh, but we could change that. I mean, you know, uh, if we need to. Um, but, uh, most of us realize that, uh, this, this church has a lot of problems. They, they, they really kind of pushing the boundaries on morality and everything else. But look what he says to them, James. It's crazy. Uh, Paul writing this letter, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, my brother, writing this under inspiration to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified. That's called positional sanctification. That's your position. To be sanctified means to be made right, to be made holy, righteous, righteous, perfectly righteous and perfectly just in God's sight, legally. Not in your actual experience, but legally. Have been sanctified. We're supposed to be sanctified experientially, but these people have been. When it's a past fact, it means it's your position, okay? You've been sanctified. Where? How? In Christ Jesus, in Christ, every believer, New Testament believer is in Christ. And one of the things we have, Lindley Lovett, uh, uh, Wolfgang Digg, Brad McCoy, uh, Steve Bowers, we have a positional sanctification. God sees us as righteous and just, perfect righteous and just, because he makes us that way legally, positionally in, in Christ. Let's look at another one. Look at Romans 8.1. Go back toward the front of the New Testament, this one big book and go to chapter 8, 1. Once you start becoming aware our position in Christ is described by this preposition, in Him, or in Christ, or in whom, uh, you realize that it's stating a bunch of amazing privileges we have on our first day as a believer, on our worst day as a believer, and on our last day on earth as a believer. Uh, Romans 8, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are, where? In Christ, that's your position, Jan, as a as a daughter of God. You've been sanctified positionally. You've been uh, put in a position where he sees none of your sins are going to be held against you as far as your status with God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at uh, one more, Ephesians 1.7. And we could spend two messages just looking at these passages that talk about our position. But uh, we'll just pick a couple that are especially, especially good. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Him, in Christ, we, that's plural, that's all y'all. So let's say Doug Strange and Meg Strange and David Dribbling and uh, uh, Janice Skinner and uh, Nancy Postalway and Ken Wanzer. In Him, we have redemption. We've been bought through His blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to riches of his grace. So go back to First Kings, please. Uh, God is uh, assuring uh, Solomon that he and this nation have a special position, and they did have a special position. But you know what? Ken Jones and uh, Stan Heath and Brown McCoy have a specialer—that word—position. We don't need. Be sacrificing animals, waiting for a Messiah. He's been here; mission accomplished. And in Christ, we've got sanctification, forgiveness, justification, redemption—all of these things that, in God's sight, make us fit for heaven. And uh, we just haven't been promoted yet, but it's coming. Okay. So that's the first thing he reflects on: actively appreciate your privileged position in the Lord. Number two, verses four and five: pursue with a passion, a consistent commitment. To honor honor, and obey the Lord in the future. Okay, what have you done for me lately kind of thing. Keep it going. Keep it moving. As for you, if from now on you'll walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness. Boy, God's awful gracious to David, isn't he? That's the way he is with his kids because we know David wasn't perfect. He's not talking about perfectly sinless perfection there. Doing according to all that I've commanded you, and if you'll keep my statutes and my ordinance, then I'll establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. You'll from until Jesus comes back the second time, you'll have a ruler on your throne, which didn't happen because they didn't do it. They blew it. Then I'll establish an active living dynasty, actually sitting on the throne in Israel, just as I promised your father David, saying, You shall not like a man on the throne of Israel. Boom. That was the uh the promise uh God desires not just ritual, not just a beautiful temple um, to do worship acts in, but God desires something much better than that. It's called good, good works. Austin, that's doing the right thing for the right reason. It's it's not doing the right thing to impress other people or to look religious or to make points with God even. It's doing the right thing because you want to serve and honor and glorify the one that served you. Know, we are talking about unconditional love yesterday with a young couple that's going to be married in about a month. And you know, uh, I told them what I always tell them, you know, uh, it's not a 50-50 deal. It's 100%, 100%. And, you know, you can't change the way they think and act today, but you can uh, control with the Holy Spirit the way you think and react to where they are today. And loving your wife is tough because it's a moving target. I mean, She's a moving target. Uh, she goes through seasons of life and good times and bad times and sometimes she's a little grumpy, but I get grumpier, so she can trump me on that, you know. Sometimes she's a little bit picky. And I'm probably pickier, but boy, I'll tell you this. You know, uh, I've seen the lights of Paris. I've seen the lights of Rome. But the most beautiful lights I've ever seen are the taillights on my children's car when they're backing out of my driveway and taking my grandchildren back home. So we're both uh, looking forward to that. Actually, it doesn't work that way in my family. i got to drive 100 miles and pick up the grandkids. 100 miles back, 100 miles to drop them off. And then that last 100 miles is a happy, happy drive. Uh, <laughs> now, they're fun, but man, they will wear you to a frazzle. And this is the first time we've had all four of them together. So uh, the fact I'm even conscious at this point is really kind of a miracle, just so you'll know. Now, verses 6 through 9 is the flip side. And I started and talked about the need for consistent, uh, uh, positive discipline in homes to have any kind of... uh normality in American homes. God is a father that's very active and engaged and he will discipline his children when they get out of line. And look at what we see in verses 6 through 9. But if you, Solomon, or your sons shall indeed turn away from following me, shall not keep my commandments, my statutes, what I said before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them. Now, I hate to tell you this, but let's fast forward about 20 years. Look at, Chapter 11, verse 4. What came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after what? How in the world can somebody who built the temple, who had God talk to him twice, let some good-looking women uh, have him turn his heart after other lowercase g gods who don't even exist, and his heart was not wholly devoted? You know? This is God in grace saying, you don't have to do that. We know after the fact he does it. But God says, if you turn, you follow other gods. Then, verse 7, back in chapter 9, I'll cut off Israel from the land I've given Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll let a military force take you into captivity. And, of course, that's what happens in the Old Testament, right? And the house which I've consecrated for my name, this temple, this amazing building, the privilege that you got for me to be dwelling in the center of your nation, I'll cast out of my sight. Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house, this incredible temple, will become a heap of ruins, exactly what happens in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians come through. Everyone who passes by will be astonished, hiss, and say, Why has Yahweh done this to his land to his house? This house. And they'll say, Because they forsook him. They forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of Egypt, who spoke to Solomon a couple times, allowed him to have the privilege of building a temple, and worshiped other gods and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity upon them. Uh, This appearance of God here was an act of grace and a warning and a stop sign, or at least a yield sign, and Solomon drives right on through it as it turns out. Not the next day, but slowly and certainly. He does that. And so, you know, you cannot coast spiritually. You just can't do it. Uh, it's riding a bicycle uphill. You stop pedaling. You're going to automatically start losing ground. So let me take this home this way. Proper, positive discipline, the type that God administered to his Old Testament nation, is the responsibility of parents, especially fathers. And by the way, some of, some of my biggest heroes in life are single mothers who work so hard and they usually work two jobs, and they got a couple of kids. They may have some really bad choices with men, but my heart goes out to the ones that are just doing everything they can to overcome the negative influence of some of these men they've been with and trying to keep the family afloat, and you get a lot of amazing people doing those kind of things. But the ideal would have been, you know, wait for the right person. Uh, Sex is too important and too great to waste outside of marriage. Do it the right way. Let it be the glue that holds you together. Live together, love one another in the ups and downs and the good and bad, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, the breakfast table some mornings is pretty ugly. You know, that's just me, you know, before I uh, put my hair on, you know. Uh, and let your kids grow up in that kind of incubator. And when they break the rules, have loving, firm, but certain discipline so they have some kind of sense of choice consequence, fear of God, fear of man, and they don't burn police cars and, you know, uh, uh, execute police officers and blame those uh, heroes for their problems. So proper positive discipline is responsible of parents and certainly God as a good father administers discipline and blessing uh, when appropriate to Old Testament believers in Israel and specifically does the same thing to individual New Testament believers and to the New Testament church as well. Uh, divine discipline does not kick believers out of God's family. It's designed to encourage renewed fellowship in and service to his family. Maybe one of the best passages on that is found in Hebrews 12, which reads, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens every child whom he receives. Realize that God, when he disciplines you, is treating you as his child when you endure his discipline. For what son in a normative family, you can't say that in America anymore because it typically doesn't happen. Many people don't know who their fathers are. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? That's the problem. We've got a lot of those types in our culture today. And it's not those kids' fault. I understand that. But it's the culture's fault for glorifying a lot of this stuff. If you're without discipline, then you're an illegitimate son. You're not even a true son or a daughter. Think about it. We had earthly fathers who disciplined us. And again, the writer is assuming that's just the way it's going to work. This way it should work. It doesn't work that way in our culture. And you can't give... Set up a social program that's going to fix the problem. You can deal with some of the fallout, and we need to do that, of course. But it's not going to fix it long term. We had fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits, God uh, our Father, and live? For they, our fathers on earth, disciplined us for a short time during our childhood, as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our eternal good, that we may share his holiness, his wholeness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but in time it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Uh, God is trying to redeem our mistakes and make us better people, and uh, that's why sometimes he does discipline us. Uh, almost done, but let me show you one spectacular example of divine discipline in New Testament context. First Corinthians 11. And we are going to do the Lord's Supper in two weeks, as I've uh, intimated already. And usually I use the First Corinthians passage as the passage we read when we do that. But here's some kind of inside baseball stuff you might not remember about the Lord's Supper in Corinth. 1 uh, Corinthians 11, verse 26. He says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup in the Lord's Supper, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, that's important. That's really important, okay? Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, irreverent, out of fellowship, just going through the motions, big joke, big deal. Okay, we get juice and cookies today. Shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. This is serious sin. This is blasphemy if you don't take this seriously. Therefore, a man should examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment, discipline to himself if he doesn't judge the body himself rightly. And then he says, for this reason, because a lot of people in the Corinthian church are playing games at the Lord's Supper, and they're playing church generally with the church. He says, for this reason, many among you are weak And sick, that's divine discipline. Not every time you get sick are you under divine discipline, but that can happen. That can be one of the examples of divine discipline, some kind of physical ailment. And then he says, and a number sleep. What does that mean? Now, as a preacher, I see a lot of people sleeping every Sunday, but he's not talking about that. Okay, Sleep is a euphemism for the death of a believer. He's saying God has allowed some of the believers at Corinth Bible Fellowship to suffer premature death Because they're horsing around, they're debasing, they're they're being blasphemous in their approach uh, toward the Lord's Supper, okay? Now, a lot of us don't even think in those categories. It's not true every time something bad happens to somebody or somebody dies early, they've been in divine discipline. But that can be what's happening in certain cases, and that was the case here. But if we judged ourselves rightly, if we critiqued our attitude and did the right thing, we wouldn't have been judged like that. But when we're judged like that, we're being disciplined by the Lord. God's a good father. He disciplines. He's in charge of the Department of Discipline uh, over his family of believers. So we'll not be condemned along with the rest of the world. That's not talking about hell. That's being uh, us living such a ridiculously imperfect Christian life. Uh, we look just like the world is going down the dumper. Um, and you know believers who do stuff like that sometimes. So then, my brethren, when you come together, wait for one another, focus on the right thing, Don't come just because you're hungry. Don't come because you need some refreshments. This is much more important than that. That's a nice example, I think, of divine discipline. It kind of grabs your attention because it's kind of hard to to get around. But again, as I say, the principle of divine discipline, God as a father who does discipline his disobedient children, doesn't mean that all the trials and the illnesses and the tragedies that come into our lives as Christians are divine discipline necessarily at all. It does mean at times... Because we all stumble in many ways, James says. We all leak some oil, have weaknesses. All Christians will, to some extent, experience. And and thus we should recognize and respond to divine discipline. Sometimes God just lets the effects of our stupid decisions be the divine discipline. And a lot of times, you know, people uh, sow their wild oats and then they come to me to pray for a crop failure, you know. And it doesn't usually work that way, unfortunately. So... Uh, God is a good father. He disciplines his children. And we need to respect that and respect him enough uh, to live a life consistent with that. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, you know, I can't help but think about our culture as I read about this statement to Solomon to renew his walk after some great accomplishments and to warn him about the reality, the possibility of discipline if, in fact, he gets out of line, which we know he did. Uh, and then we look at our culture, and there's just so little personal responsibility, and so many even people in church circles just don't connect the dots between our choices and some of the negative consequences. So we blame the teachers for lack of education, we blame the policemen for crime, uh, we blame the the churches for spiritual malfunctions, and it seems strange that so many people standing in the in the gap, there trying to help, end up being uh, criticized as the problem. which really so many more profound dynamics there. Fathers, please send a spirit of revival to our nation. Uh, I just got to believe that uh, Romans eight twenty eight will be functioning on November 9th before, during, and after the election this time. But uh, I pray that what we really need is a profound spiritual uh, revival that would draw people to the Savior and that would totally reshape the social fabric in a way no government edict No president of the United States and no pastor, frankly, could affect. And so we pray you might be pleased if it's not too late that you might send revival, a third great awakening to our beloved country. Uh, For others of us who are in position of authority where occasionally we have to discipline or correct, give us the courage to do that, knowing quite often it will be misconstrued. And as we walk as sons and daughters of yours, Father, help us to embrace your will with a passion in a positive sense, as opposed to trying to figure out how close to the lines can we get without invoking divine discipline. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.